and uh, very thankful for your service yesterday and prayers uh, as we were reaching out into the community. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 again, and we're going to move along from uh, verses 20 through about 28 today, continuing uh, from what we were talking about last week. And uh, we'll, we'll start with a word of prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for your blessings today, and I just praise you for your love for us. I thank you for the trials and the struggles that come our way, um, Lord, as a result of giving the gospel message. Um, Lord, and I pray that, uh, that we would be able to continue, that we would choose to be faithful to you this week, and, uh, and Lord, to listen to what you have for us today and to understand it, and Lord, to be able to apply it to our lives. And I'm just, I'm just so grateful for your love for us, um, Lord, your resurrection, your death on the cross, and Lord, the, the promises that you give us. Um, Lord, to, to stand firm and to follow you. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I started with o- opening with uh, asking the question if we've ever persecuted other Christian or another Christian. Um, does anybody want to give a testimony of if that opportunity really presented itself this week? Or this past week? Uh, you know, because... It seems like, uh, for me anyway, oftentimes when I, when I teach or have been studying something, um, sometimes it's, it's because of something, there's, there's things that have just happened that the Lord is teaching me. And then there's other times where um, I'll be teaching and, uh, or studying, <laughs> studying something, and it's a preparation for what's to come. And God already knows what's going to come. Uh, and so he prepares you, prepares us through his word, with his word, to, uh, to be able to endure, to be able to stand under what, what is in front of us. So the reason why, that's the reason why I asked that again today, is to see if anything like that uh, maybe had come up this week. But uh, we read through, um, through verse 19 last week, and we were, we were discussing how... Uh, things that were going on in the Corinthian church, um, he, he's, he describes that how he persecuted church, the church and the things that happened uh, since then when the Lord was, uh, as the Lord made himself known to Paul, he makes the statement that it's not without effect. So how often do we read or study the scripture and, uh, and we realize or, or have to make a change, thank you, make a change to demonstrate the effect of the Scripture on our life. Um, we read John eleven seventeen through 53, and that's when Lazarus died, and uh, Jesus shows up, and Martha comes out and says, if you would have been here, he would not have died. Um, but we also see throughout the Gospels in some places where Jesus tells a person who approaches him, it says, uh, I, I forget who it is, but there's a gentleman, I think it's a centurion, maybe that comes up and says, uh, my daughter, or no, I'm sorry, the, the Greek woman. She comes up and she says, my daughter is dying. And he just says the word from a distance and he doesn't even have to show up. So could he have healed Lazarus from where he was at? Of course. 
Uh, but he didn't, and it was for his purpose to demonstrate to the Jewish leaders that were there, to demonstrate to them that he has power over death. And so when he's describing the resurrection, we're going to read here in just a minute, we'll start in verse 20. He's described as the first fruits. So he raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, he raised a young girl from the dead, also in the Gospels. But he's described as the first fruits because he is the first to raise from the dead himself. And uh, so when we look at that, um, but the, the, the key I wanted, the point I wanted to make before we get into that is, is when Martha approaches Jesus on, as he's coming up to, the, um, to Bethany, Martha is living like the one who has been forgiven much. Okay, so if we think about the... Uh, the passage in Luke 7 where this, this woman comes up to Jesus and she's, she's pouring this perfume on his feet. And let's just, let's just look that, at that for just a second. Luke 7, 36. Um, we won't read the whole thing for the sake of time, but I want to make a point with this that um, when we understand... Uh, and I'm, I'm learning this more and more every day. That when we understand what, what God has done, the grace that comes out of obedience. Um, we'll start in verse uh, 39. It says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of a woman she is, and that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I've, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he says, two people owed money to a, to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of them both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet me, my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so <clears throat> when we understand that, um, and, and I think we can all probably relate more to the woman um, who has been forgiven much more than the Pharisees, but there's, there's still times in our lives where it's easy to go, I'm glad I'm not like that person, you know. Um, and Paul helps us to understand that in this particular passage as well. And as he approaches talking about the resurrection, let's just read verses 20 uh, through uh, 28. And it, of course, it's a continuation uh, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, 
The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands, uh, hands over the kingdom to God the Father. After he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it's clear that that does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So when we look at this and it says Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, Paul's conclusion is based on the evidence set forth in verses 3 through 8 when he says, For what I received I passed on to you, as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And so when he describes those who are still living, he's, <laughs> I kind of picture them, they're still living. You want to go come with me and let's go talk to them? You want to, you know, shall we discuss with people who actually saw what happened um, and, and give proofs of? That, that part of it they're already convinced of. Um, Christ has been raised from the dead, and, and, and so the conclusion is based on the, the evidence that he sets forth. So then when he says first fruits, he's describing the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the first sheaf of the harvest. Okay, so when we describe like the rapture and the second coming, uh, the second coming of Christ is described in the Gospels um, where people will be, t will be caught up or taken uh, and some will be left. And the ones that are taken in, can easily, sometimes it can be confused by that meaning the rapture when in fact what it's talking about is the ones who are killed and, and taken away from the eternity uh, with Christ. And so... Um, the harvest is given to the Lord. The first fruits, uh, if we go back to, we're not going to turn there, but Exodus twenty three nineteen says to bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Um, and he's describing giving to the Lord. Jesus is the first fruits, the best of the harvest given to the Lord as a token of all that the harvest, that all the harvest belongs to him. And it will be dedicated to him through dedicated lives. So Jesus came, dedicated his, his life, his physical life on earth is dedicated to serving God and to serving people and to being completely obedient. He's the first fruits of the harvest of the resurrection. And from that point on, the resurrection that takes place later all belongs to the Lord. Everything that he resurrects from the dead belongs to him. 
And so this is what he means by the first fruits. So if we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, he gives a similar description. Yeah, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And what he's, when he says into a living hope, um, the new birth into a living hope is, can be translated everlasting life. Um, hope that's alive because of the resurrection of the dead. Now, how does this help us in sharing the gospel with people? How does understanding the resurrection of the dead help us in sharing the gospel with people? You know, um, Paul says just in the verses just before what we're reading, that in those also we have, who have fallen asleep, if, if they're lost, if, not only, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. How many people believe that this life is it? How many believe that we live and then we die and that's the end? Probably a lot. And, there, and I would even say that most of those people, most people would say, I do believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I do believe that there's life after death. But how we live our lives today, more times than not, I think sometimes, or, or a lot of times, and I know in my own experience, I've said that since I was a child. But at the same time, I've lived like, like I don't want to die because I'm afraid that that's going to be the end. You know, I'm afraid that, that, that what I believe is not true. And Paul is saying that if that is true, then the pagan religions are right, and we should be the most pitiful people. We should be pitied more than anybody else. And so I've, I've been in that position before um, in my Christian walk, and it's not until I start really investigating and con being convinced Jesus Christ did raise from the dead. The evidence is there. The re if, you do the, if we do the research and we go back, the historical documentation of the resurrection of Christ is overwhelming. And for someone who lives their life today in fear of uh, that death is the end and that that's it, you know, the older we get, it, it's creeping up. It's closer and it's closer and it's closer. Hebrews 9 tells us that every single one of us has an appointment, and that is death. We're all appointed once to die, and then after that, <laughs> the judgment. And, and I chuckle because death is not the end. It's really just a door. You know, people will say that the grave is a, it's a hole. It's, it's, it's a stop. It's an ending point. And when the reality is, is the Bible describes death as a door into eternity and into either presence with God for eternity or separation from God. 
and that's eternity as well. And so death by definition doesn't mean finished or end of existence or anything like that. It means separation. So physically when we die, our spirit is separated from our body. And so then when the resurrection occurs, the body is renewed and the spirit is rejoined. And so... um, Yeah. And I, you know, talked to him. He goes, "I wish I believed what you believe, but yeah, I don't believe that." Right. Yeah, and it. Right. Some are, some aren't. You know, um, and and I've I've spoken to people like that too. You know, that's just that's the circle of life. You know, is what they'll describe. You know, that's just the way it is. Right. 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 And so, and and when I when a person like that approaches me, you know, it's. I guess I would look at them. I would love to engage in a conversation with somebody like that. I haven't in a very very long time. But uh, I could, because I've just never met anybody like that, um, or at least it's been years and years ago since I have. But, you know, I would like to ask them, wow, you know, that, what it must be like to just live like that and live and then I'm going to die. And that's, that's the end. Um, and then just look around at creation with that person and say, what do you think of everything that we see around us? You know, and not, not to be critical or anything like that, but... Wow, you know, do you, you, so you don't believe that there was a, that there was a creative being that put all of this in place and put it in motion or anything like that? Um, and then the next question is, how did good and evil, does good and evil exist? Does light and darkness exist? And if the answer is yes, because I don't know anybody who doesn't think, yes, there's good, and then there's bad, you know, um, where did they come from? You know, where did the moral code that we live by or the moral standard that we live, where did it come from? There was the, because there's a moral creator as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're taking the stand. Have you ever taken the stand for somebody that you were convinced was guilty and you were representing them and you knew that they were guilty but you still had to represent them, you know? And you're going before a judge. The reality is... There's a judge physically for things like that because there is a moral judge spiritually as well. And so, yeah, that would, that would be a very interesting, uh, interesting conversation uh, to have. Right. And so in order to do that, I think we have to be um, a cynic toward the gospel, toward the Bible. Um, we have to be a cynic toward any kind of history. You know, it, it's, it, to me it's no different than saying, well, um, 
and I know somebody, somebody that knows more about history than me is going to probably speak up, but to say that Christopher Columbus and his crew didn't actually sail to the United States of America, I, you know, it didn't actually happen. We've been here all along. You know, do you believe that? Um, if the answer is yes, we believe that, he, that we were here all along and there wasn't a, dis- a discoverer that came from somewhere else to here, uh, then, then we have to, if we don't believe the Bible's true, then we have to a- ignore those types of history as well because I wasn't here to see it happen. It wasn't my testimony. I have to trust the testimony of people who were truth-tellers throughout history um, and again, it goes back to the moral code. It goes back to uh, good and evil, truth tellers and liars. And so we trust this because Paul, just like what Paul's saying here, he's saying there's testimony about it. It's being preached because it's been proven true. Um, I like what, uh, I forget what his name is, but the guy for cross-examined. Um, you don't remember either. Frank, Frank Turek. He says, you know, people want to argue that truth is relative. And he says, you have to apply the claim to itself and ask the question, is that true? And if the answer is yes, then you've proven that truth exists and it's not relative. Truth has to be a description of what actually has happened. And uh, it has to be an accurate description. But anyway, Paul is talking about the description of the resurrection of Christ and Christ being the first of that and the best. And because he's the first and because he is the perfect uh, being and the perfect resurrection, he has the power over everything else and over everyone else, over every authority in nature or individual person to raise those who are faithful to him. And so that's got to be the question that, that goes along with um, salvation is being faithful to uh, the things that Christ, um, the things that Christ gives us. Right. Right. So. <laughs> Well, that's right. The, the, the definition that I like to use is a description of reality as it actually is. So, so I walked up, you know, I, I walk up to somebody, like if I walked up to Brian and said, hey, can I see your keys? Oh, sure, here. Well, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Thanks for the truck. My truth is, it's my truck now. Is that, is that a good description of truth? No, it's not. And most people, 90%, of, 99% of the people I know would say, no, that's not true. You didn't pay for it. The title's got my name on it. And, and you know, it's in my garage or at my house every day. It's mine. It belongs to me. Um, and so that's, that's the questions, the kind of questions that I ask. And I, don't, and I understand what you're saying because it's becoming more and more difficult because there are people in our culture that are saying, you know what, whatever's true for you, if you believe that God made a mistake somewhere in time and is no longer perfect, I mean, that's what you have to be saying to say, okay, God made a mistake. I'm not really a man. I'm a woman uh, because I feel like a woman inside. 
or I have the tendencies, the Bible gives very clearly, and, and I think, <laughs> I wonder if when the writers of the Scripture were writing, writing this down, they were going, what? You know, um, they were writing stuff down that God was looking ahead in the future and seeing 2022 saying, make sure you write this down because this is going to be an issue someday. You know, um, and he gives very clear descriptions that these will be temptations that will come in your life at some point or another, struggles that will come in, in people's lives, some people's lives, maybe not all, but somebody will deal with this. And you have to make the choice to do what is right in the eyes of God. So we see throughout the scripture in many places to live righteously, uh, to choose what is right according to God's word. Um, and that, that is becoming more and more of a struggle today. Um, look at Romans chapter 5. And if we read, first of all, just read verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. So again, he's, he's describing how death came, and then he's going to go on to describe how resurrection came. And so um, the resurrection of the dead comes through also through a man in verses 14 through 21. Um, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern for the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought, uh, brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ consequently just as the one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people for just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners so also through the obedience of the one man the many were made righteous the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin is increased, grace increased all the more. Now before I read the next verse, I want to mention what you're describing, they want to get rid of the law. They want to get rid of the moral code that says, I'm a sinner. They don't want to say, I'm a sinner and sin is okay. And, and, and that, I, I, well, I shouldn't say that. That is partly too, true as well. But if you get rid of the law that says the things I do are sin, I feel pretty good. My life's not so bad. 
And so what, he's go- what he goes on to say and what he has been saying in verse 22, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ. So when we understand righteous living according to what God says, we realize our condition and we realize the, the condition of the world and the people around us and ourselves. I, I say the people around us, but I am just as susceptible to temptation as anybody is until I choose to live for Christ and I choose, until I choose to allow Christ to live through me. And so um, people like to use grace as, as a coupon, you know, or they want to cheapen it by saying, well, I don't have to do anything because of grace. Grace is we're saved through faith. Um, we're saved by grace through faith. But faith says that we will live righteously we, when, we, when we step into faith. And so, um, you know, he's giving that description here uh, that if there is no righteous living, there is no grace for that person. Um, and when we, what we are receiving, though, or what an individual is receiving prior to submitting to Christ and repentance is mercy. God shows his mercy so that he have may, or he's patient with us so that he can have mercy on all of us. So a person, and, you know, I've explained this to some people as well that profess to be Christians that want to continue to live uh, a sinful lifestyle that and I explained it to them that there was a point in my life where I wanted to profess to be a Christian as well wanted to continue to live in a, in a sinful lifestyle and I said it was God's mercy on me that allowed me to continue to live until the light clicked on in my head and in my heart to realize whoa I am a filthy person before a holy God and he has been so patient with me to the point of today where he says, now do you understand how much I love you? And it's hard for me to be patient like that with, with, with other people. But he has to demonstrate that to me to be able to allow me to demonstrate that to other people. And, and he lets me fail at it. And then he says, ah, come on, let's start over. Let's try again. And, and, and to teach us that way. And so Paul is giving, when he gives the, the description of the resurrection, he's in the middle of a church where if we look at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, let's see, I think it's verse 29. I'm on the wrong page here. Okay, yeah. He says, in verse 29, he says, Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not all raised at all, why are people baptized for them? He's describing here a practice that's taking place in the church. And there's a word in there that gives evidence that this practice is not acceptable. Do you see it? In this, in this passage, now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? 
Everywhere you read Paul's instructions, he says, we didn't teach you that. We didn't do that. We showed you this. And in here, he says, if there is no resurrection, what will they do? So I've got the word they underlined here because Paul's not giving um, any credential to what they're doing. He's saying this is a practice that's taking place that they took and they, and they stuck in there to say, you know what, this person died and they weren't baptized. Maybe we should baptize somebody for them. And this practice starts in the church and Paul's saying, that's not what we taught you. And if there is no resurrection, if there's people in the, in the body of believers that are not convinced that there is a resurrection, why are you baptizing people for the dead? You know, and so these are the kind of practices that are easy to, to, uh, to allow to come in. Um, and if we back up, so if we back up to verse 21, this is very similar to what we read in Romans 5. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam we all die, so in Christ we will all Christ, all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And he goes on to give the sequence sequence of events that's going to take place at the second coming as well. And so uh, Hebrews 9, if we look at Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, Hebrews chapter 9. Starting in verse 27, he says, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Excuse me. Back to 1 Corinthians 15 again in verses uh, 51 through 58. Paul writes this. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immorality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immorality, immortality, excuse me, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is giving this mystery that John writes about later as he's in the presence of Jesus, and Jesus is telling him, write down everything that that you see, write down everything that I tell you. And... um, I'm jumping ahead of myself. This is in Revelation 20. Let's, let's look at Revelation chapter 20. Verse 
Revelation 20, verses uh, uh, 11 through 15, and then we're going to go right on into 21 through verse 8. He says, Then I saw a great white throne. This is after the rapture that Paul describes, and Paul describes these things as well. Um, Paul's describing the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15, um, but here John is describing the second co- or the end of the millennium. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up their dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it's done. It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. When the reality, cowardly, um, it's the lost, and the best way I can describe that to you is in Hebrews uh, 10. There's another passage similar to that. Um, last week, Jim was in Hebrews 10, and he was, you know, the title was um, "Why Church," uh, and and so we were going through these these passages, and starting in verse 32, he says, "Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in great conflict, full of suffering." Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. 
you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you know that you yourselves have, been, have better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need, not, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And by my, right, by my righteous one will live, but my righteous one, excuse me, will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So when we read through this, if we reflect back on the parable of the soils, there are all four of them come and say, yes, that is true what Jesus is describing. Three of them shrink back and are lost. One perseveres and produces fruit and perseveres to the end. And so... When I read about the cowardly, um, we see people who are going to church, they're going through the, you know, they're, they're doing the things that a Christian would normally do, but then when it comes to, when difficulties or trials come, they say, you know what, I, I, I don't know that I can handle this. And when, G, when God, Jesus, tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you to do everything that I've allowed to come into your life, Paul says, I'll do it. That's, that's the example, the humanly example outside of Jesus for a, for a sinner like me to say that God's grace is sufficient because I've not suffered the things that Paul suffered. I've not suffered the things that Peter and all of the apostles have suffered. I've not had a knife to my throat uh, like James did. Um, James, the, the brother of John, um, we read in Acts, I forget where it's at, it's in 13 or so, somewhere in there, that, um, that he was put to death by the sword because he was following Christ, because he was preaching the gospel. Um, that's, the, that's the next martyr that we read about after Stephen um, in the book of Acts. I've not had that. I've not had anybody say, look, you need to be quiet or I'm going to take your life or I'm going to take your daughter's life or your son's life. Uh, if you don't stop preaching about Jesus. Um, but I'm convinced that those days are coming, you know. Uh, and a cowardly person, you know, and I'm not saying that, that it's easy to stand up in that, but a cowardly person would, will say, okay, 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 whatever you say, just don't hurt anybody. Paul says that when this tent of a body is destroyed, He's looking forward to the promise of eternity. And so when he, when he describes to the church in Corinth, if there is no promise of eternity, if there is no resurrection, you can have all the pity on me you want. I should be pitied. And that's, that's the long answer to a short question. <laughs> Right. And so how do we know that what Jesus has promised that hasn't been fulfilled is true and will happen? How do we know that? How do we know that 
Jesus will resurrect the dead. How do we know that what we just read in Revelation about the new Jerusalem? Uh, I, I, in my study, I was reading on because I, I knew that it had been described about the size of the city, you know, and I'm looking at it and it says uh, 12,000, 12, and I forget of what, the, the, what the measurement is used, but I went through my notes. It says 12,000 miles square. And I'm going, let's see, it's, it's about 1,000 miles from here to Panama City Beach. 14,000 miles. <laughs> and I'm trying to picture in my head, is that about the size of the actual size of the earth? Only it's a cube? <laughs> you know, and I'm trying to imagine how big that is. Um, I'm sorry, I'm getting off the subject here, but, but how, do we, how do we know what Jesus has promised is going to come true? Because he said so, but, but okay, we have faith in that. And in the Old Testament, there's a description given about prophets. If a prophet says something and it doesn't happen, don't believe them. Don't follow them. If a prophet says something and it does come true, you can believe what they say. So there are several, I mean, so many prophecies in the Old Testament that we can go back in history and we can validate by documentation of people who, are tr who have told the truth. And uh, we can validate those things. And I always ask people, you know, because I, I have encountered people that, that say, well, I don't, I don't believe that Jesus Christ ever even lived. And I said, well, okay. So I just asked a simple question. What's your birthday? Larry, when's your birthday? January 2nd. Say it again. January 2nd. January 2nd what? <laughs> you guys speak up. 1970, 1970 what? A.D. When you get an invitation to, to a significant activity that's taking place, it often will say, in the year of our Lord, 1972. Okay? We live by, even people who don't believe, live by a calendar that was established around the birth of Jesus Christ. You know, how do you deny that? You, you, you're going to say that everybody that walks the planet is wrong? <laughs> you know, everybody that ever, I'm right. Boy, I think pretty highly of myself. You know, um, okay, oh, wow, I'm out of time. Uh, but these, there are so many evidences all around us of, of Christ and of the promises that are made as well as promises that have been fulfilled. And uh, the more understanding, the more knowledgeable we make ourselves with those things, first of all, it builds my faith. You know, the more I read, the more I believe, or the more I understand about the prophecies that have been uh, fulfilled. My faith is built up and my excitement for wanting other people to know grows as well. And at the same time, my desire for other people to know it changes because because uh, I used to pray things like this. I used to pray, Lord, help me to see people with your eyes, you know. And now I'm looking at it. And I'm saying and I'm seeing that God's plan is if you want to see it through my eyes, you have to understand where I'm coming from. You have to understand. You have to read. You have to study. And and uh, and so He gives us the Bible 
to help us to do that. And, and the more that we read, the more that we study, the more passionate we become. So just like anything else, the more time that we invest uh, in anything in our lives that builds our, our desire to, um, to do well in that. So thank you for your attention today. God bless you guys.